Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Um, so I might have started a little bit muffled when I started out tonight because I had forgotten to take off my mask. Um, because I'm still wearing my mask as much as possible. Um, I am now boosted. Uh, I have gone through the period in which it takes to get fully, uh, to have the full immune response. And yet, it looks like that may not be enough. Um, we actually were told at work today, basically, uh, that unless we were absolutely needed on, uh, campus, that we should plan to spend the rest of the month at home. Um, I'm, not having a great day about that. Um, I, I just really want this to be over and I think you all do too. Um, but let's start by once again talking about COVID-19. But this again is going to be a brief one. Um, we all know, but I do like to, um, talk a little bit about what's going on. And, um, there's an interesting research, uh, angle that I read about, um, and so just a, just a little bit of COVID to tide us over. <sighs> and so, yeah, definitely, if you haven't yet gotten a booster, uh, please do that. Um, so the boosters do show that there is some, um, potential better protection, though, in the small study that they've been able to do with people who have been identified as having Omicron, uh, that have been in the U.S. There actually have been some people who were already boosted. Um, but I think most of them had been boosted very close to when they got Omicron. So that might have something to do with it. Um, but yeah. And again, we're still waiting for real data on Omicron. Initial small studies, again, suggest boosters are going to help, but they may not be enough. And so it may be that an Omicron specific booster will need to be developed in the future, but for now, do what you can. So, um, go and get a booster. Everyone should be able to do it. Uh, the CDC has opened it up to basically, um, 16 and 17 year olds. So anyone above the age of 16 should be able to get a booster. Um, again, it's fairly easy here in Massachusetts. I didn't have any issues. Um, you might want to do it sooner rather than later because I bet it's going to fill up as people start to worry about Omicron and people are also trying to get, um, you know, get the booster before they go for their holidays, et cetera. So um, if you haven't yet, and hopefully if you're a longtime listener, you already have, <laughs> then uh, you should definitely go and get it. And so... Omicron, it's, it's not looking great. Um, it's looking like this is going to be very, very, um, transmissible. And the only thing we can hope is that it is not, um, a, that it is a milder strain, that we won't be getting more people with serious illness. And so let's revisit our friends from Anime New York. Uh, so the Anime New York convention, if you uh, weren't here last week, uh, will basically most likely turn into a super spreader event um, in some respects. And so there were 53,000 attendees uh, and there is now um, the second person to have gotten uh, Omicron that they have actually identified was at said convention. And so the CDC has actually already made contact with 35,000 of the 53,000 attendees and has alerted all of the other countries, um, from which they know attendees came to, uh, New York for the convention. They've let public health officials know in all of those countries. And so health officials hope to be able to use this event to model how the virus moves and what its impact may be in the states. 
Data from this investigation will likely provide some of the earliest looks into this country on the transmissibility of the variant, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky said during a Tuesday briefing. Um, and so on the off chance that you know someone who attended the convention, uh, I would definitely, again, get a booster. And if you have any signs of infection, make sure you get tested and let health officials know if you test positive. And in fact, the 30-year-old healthcare analyst uh, from Minneapolis, who again was the second uh, confirmed case of Omicron in the U.S., told the New York Times that around half of the people he socialized with at the convention have tested positive for the coronavirus, though we are unclear whether or not those are um, Delta infections or Omicron infections. And all had been vaccinated with at least one dose of the vaccine. So again, as much as we'd like to hope to be starting to get back to normal, we're back to the possibility, possibly talking about flattening the curve with, again, mask wearing, avoiding large indoor venues, and staying at home as much as possible, even for the fully vaccinated and boosted. But we do continue to learn more about the virus, and new research may have uncovered why people who are clinically obese are more likely to have severe disease and die, even if they are younger. So it turns out that the COVID-19 virus may be able to infect and hide in fat cells. Modeling data from the CDC suggests that obesity-related infections may have contributed to as many as 30% of hospitalizations across the country last year. The paper, which has not yet gone under, undergone peer review, it's still on um, the preprint server, suggests that inflammation is the main factor in potentially heightening people's risk. They found that when they exposed mature fat cells to the virus, they produced a larger in, they produced a large inflammatory response. This could well be contributing to severe disease, senior author Catherine Blish, an immunologist at the Stanford University School of Medicine, told the New York Times. We're seeing the same inflammatory cytokines that I see in the blood of the really sick patients being produced in response to infection of those tissues. Now, of course, there could be other confounding factors as well, such as hesitancy for obese patients to engage in the healthcare system, and thus they may not engage until they are already more sick, or they may be well less diagnosed because we know that people who are obese are um, generally not as well uh, taken care of in our healthcare system. But if it is true, it's frankly just another way in which the universe is trying to make things difficult for people who are already struggling in many cases, and it just makes me sad and ugh. Um, especially since, I will be honest, knowing about the fact that obesity is a big risk factor has kept me at a low-grade level of panic as I go to work each day. Um, and so I'm honestly looking forward to not having to go to work uh, because um, people around me, uh, the people in my immediate area are great, but um, there is a lot of problem with people uh, not wearing masks or wearing them improperly. And I'm just very unhappy about the idea of having to constantly tell people to wear their masks properly and then have them immediately take them off basically as soon as you leave. Um, I just don't understand that. Um, I'm frankly sick of all of this. And I just wish that uh, it could all go away. And I'm sure you do too. Um, and so the obvious ways to do that um, are to practice good community standards, you know, social distancing, mask wearing, vaccine getting, um, all of that. But also, um, you know, what we really need to do as people and, um, you know, I'll admit I haven't done enough of um, this front myself, but um, what we really need to do is to press for the release of vaccine patents, or at the very least to press uh, first world nations to actually fulfill their obligations to um, the global south and to actually 
get vaccines out to countries where people haven't even had a chance to get one vaccine, never mind the fact that we're on our third doses, because that is what's going to keep bringing up new strains is unvaccinated people. And um, I'm really worried about unvaccinated people in America too, obviously, but they have ready access to a vaccine. Um, and it's it's just really worrisome. Um, I think it was um, Missouri. I think it was Missouri I was reading about uh, this afternoon where basically uh, someone sued to say that the um, health, um, that the uh, public health officials were doing too much and that they were overreaching their authority. And a judge ruled that, yes, they were doing that. And the attorney general basically is excited about that because he's running for Congress as a Republican. And so there are some, um, there are frankly some health agencies that have just said, okay, we're not going to do anything then. So they are no longer going to do anything to stop the spread of COVID-19 in their area. Um, and this is really upsetting. And so I just, I don't have a lot of good news about this, but we're going to, we're going to talk about better things in just a minute. But, um, yeah, it's, it's not looking great. I don't expect that we'll be taking masks off. I mean, at this point, I barely believe we'll take masks off in my lifetime. Um, I just don't understand how we're going to get through this. Um, I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and I hate being pessimistic on this show. I like to, you know, keep us wondering and happy about science, but, um, it's really hard when the science is there and people won't accept it. Um, and I'm not sure what to do about that except be very sad. Um, but again, we're going to talk a little bit more about fun and interesting things. Um, and some interesting ideas. The next, our next story is going to be about smoking and, um, you know, the, uh, you know, perils of smoking could be considered its own pandemic. Um, and so New Zealand, uh, which has done very well in preventing COVID-19 from overrunning the country, uh, they have only had 44 deaths in this entire pandemic time. And that's a country, they're a country of 5 million people and they've only had 44 deaths. Um, this is really amazing. And, um, I want to go live there now. I mean, I already wanted to go live there, but now I really want to go live there. And so now they are turning to the leading cause of preventable death in the country. So smoking kills around 5,000 people a year. And the government would like to do something about that. But what's interesting <laughs> is that the solution they've come up with is that they are going to completely ban the sale of tobacco to anyone born after the year 2008. And so this obviously would eventually make smoking illegal for all residents of the island nation. We want to make sure young people never start smoking. We are legislating for a smoke-free generation by making an offense to sell or supply tobacco products to those aged 14 when the law comes into effect, New Zealand health official Dr. Aisha Varal said on Thursday, according to a video of the announcement. As they age, they and future generations will never legally be able to purchase tobacco, Varal continued, because the truth is there is no safe age to start smoking. And so the country has also announced that the sale of tobacco will be restricted with the number of shops allowed to sell tobacco products reduced from 8,000 to just around 500 across the country. Um, and they will also require only low nicotine tobacco to be sold. And so, yeah, it's a pretty crazy, uh, project, um, from an American perspective. Uh, they are basically putting public health in front of, um, you know, basically individual rights. So uh, one of the sources that I read said that, you know, people who currently sell cigarettes who won't be able to anymore, they're just going to be out of luck, um, which I personally am like, you sell cigarettes, you sell something that kills people. I don't have a ton of sympathy for you. And I know that there's, you know, a myriad of, of 
you know, confounding factors there, but still, um, I don't, I don't feel terrible about that, but I know that that would be a huge issue in America. And so the measure isn't just aimed at young people, though. It's also meant, it's also aimed at those who are already smokers. Practical support measures for smokers are also being prepared, being prioritized, Veral said. Smoking is a difficult habit to kick. And when I think of all the smokers I cared for, the vast majority wanted to stop and tried many times. Now, the country will still need to work on how this will be enforced and what sorts of punishments will be employed. They haven't really come up with a robust plan for that yet, which, of course, will be the important thing to monitor. Um, here in the U.S., I'd probably be appalled by such an idea because I know it would involve law enforcement officers and... Uh, nothing good that involves law enforcement officers and prohibitions, uh, have ever gone well, uh, in this country. Um, not anywhere probably, but in this country for certain, um, you know, prohibition of any drug has not gone well. And, um, yeah. <laughs> um, who it is, um, an interesting, conundrum because obviously they are 100% right, right? There's no safe amount of nicotine that you can consume without it being a health risk. And, um, you know, trying to make it illegal makes total sense in some ways, but we know that, um, when things are prohibited, they are often, uh, disproportionately, um, the penalties disproportionately affect uh, lower income and especially um, uh, people of color. And so smoking is obviously already disproportionately present in low income communities. Um, and those low income communities tend to already be over policed. So especially in America, that would be a terrible thing. Um, but in New Zealand, it seems like a pretty bold plan because New Zealand is a very different place than the U.S., and so one of the encouraging signs is that a um, Maori advisory task force will be set up in order to hold the Ministry of Health, the government, and the tobacco control sector accountable for their actions towards the plan. And so um, if you don't know, New Zealand is trying its best to really be um, a better steward of the government by having um, Maori representation and really, um, trying to, um, have a country that is not just, um, a product of bare colonialism. Um, I don't know enough about it to know if it's really working well and if, you know, um, indigenous people feel like they are actually being seen and heard, but I know they're at least making the effort, which is more than a lot of other countries can say. Um, and so uh, Dr. Alastair Humphrey said the policy would be a defining moment for respiratory health. Um, and he is the associate chairman of New Zealand, of the New Zealand Medical Association. Um, he said, cigarettes smoking kills 14 New Zealanders every day, and two out of three smokers will die as a result of smoking. We believe that the action plan offers some hope of realizing our 2025 smoke-free Aotearoa goal and keeping our Tamariki smoke-free. Now, um, I'm hoping that I pronounce those at least slightly correctly. Um, so Aotearoa is the Maori word um, for New Zealand, um, the modern word for it. And um, I'm not I forgot to look up what Tamariki means. I assume it's something like community, um, but obviously don't hold me to that because I did forget to look up what it means specifically. So obviously I'm interested to see how this will develop and whether or not it will actually help to change the country's views on smoking. Um, again, hopefully they will continue to maintain a focus on Maori and Pacific people and their communities, which are hardest hit by smoking. Um, and so, yeah, again, the legacies of colonialism um, are always there to uh, make you sad. <laughs> but it's also a hopeful goal that they are actually trying to do something. And um, I don't know what Ma what um, New Zealand's crime rates are. I'm pretty sure they're a lot less than they are 
um, in the U.S., even though people really over-exaggerate the um, crime rates in the U.S. a lot of times. But still, I um, think that they probably have less crime overall. So hopefully this won't end up with some sort of like Chicagoland Al Capone uh, syndicate <laughs> developing in the country. But you never know. Okay. So let's move on now and talk about um, autism spectrum disorder or ASD for a moment. Now, I think that there is a lot of discussion to be had around this particular subject and whether we are too quick to diagnose alternative forms of thinking as pathological. Uh, but that is not tonight's topic. We are, I'm not going to spend the rest of the night uh being angry at people for saying that uh, people who think differently obviously have some kind of disorder. We're just gonna we're just gonna let it lie for today um, because the story isn't really um, that much about um, the sort of ins and outs of ASD. It's just a kind of interesting um, a way in which something that's been thought has been flipped on its head. And so uh, tonight we're going to talk about a study that looked at one of the claims asserted by many autism activists and uh, quote unquote healthcare providers, uh, whether the science behind their assertion holds water. So we're going to talk about the microbiome and how it affects behavior. Now, of course, the microbiome has been hot stuff in the last few years. It seems like Everyone and their brother sees it as the new way to cure pretty much everything. Uh, so it's unsurprising that having abnormalities in one's microbiome is often associated with autism. And so many parents are led to believe that by fixing, quote unquote, their child's microbiome, they can cure, quote unquote, their child's autism. Now, of course, as we all know, autism isn't a single disorder and its presentation can vary wildly. And so it seems rather unlikely that such a one-to-one -one correlation could be true. And obviously something that offers a kind of miracle cure is generally bunkum. Uh, let's be perfectly real. And so a team of Australian scientists led by uh, Jacob Groton, a researcher at the University of Queensland and at the Cooperative Research Center for Living with Autism, decided to look into whether there was a connection. And so the researchers looked at the studies that suggested a link and found that most were, and I know you're going to be shocked by this if you uh, are a regular listener, most of those have been done in mice. Um, so if you're not a regular listener, um, there is actually a Twitter uh, account, I don't know if it's still active, but it was active um, for a long time, where someone um, actually had a Twitter that was called Just Say In Mice um, or something like that, because people will um, often cite uh, papers on um, different kinds of uh, health benefits, supposedly, and almost always... Uh, unless it's, you know, I mean, obviously there are studies that eventually get to humans, but a lot of times, especially the ones that sound really amazing, are often done in mice. And obviously mice are not humans. And we've talked over and over again about how sometimes you can have a amazing effect in mice and then you try to uh, move that amazing effect to humans, and it totally doesn't work. Um, so mice are great models for a lot of things. They help us, you know, do a lot of trial and error easy, but we're not mice. Uh, we're both mammals, but, you know, we're, we're not evolutionarily, uh, as close as we would really need to be in order for that to be a much, um, more one to one, um, ratio. And so they also found that the human studies uh, that were out there found um, that the connections were small, um, biased, failed to account for confounding factors, and basically they were otherwise poorly designed and analyzed. And so 
Again, I could say a lot more about most studies on autism, especially childhood autism. Uh, but again, I will refrain. Um, all right. I'm not going to refrain for oh, the whole time. I'm just going to talk a little bit. Um, so obviously some of you will know that I have an autistic nephew and I am forever grateful that he's old enough that his mother wasn't raised, uh, wasn't able to raise him via, uh, autism Facebook groups. Uh, and so he was born just a little bit before, uh, that kind of thing took off and thank goodness, uh, she only had a few brushes with pseudoscience around autism. Uh, for instance, Andrew Wakefield's terrible legacy, thankfully, uh, didn't reach her in time for her to act upon it if she had believed in it. Um, I do remember at one point my mom, um, finding a, uh, article about that and saying, oh, well, maybe this is it. Um, and me being skeptical at the time, I mean, I was much younger and still being skeptical, like, mm, not sure that that's true. Um, but luckily my sister actually raised him to pretty much to believe that he was normal and she never actually thought of him as damaged or in needing of a cure, which is something that I think a lot of parents could do better. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I understand, uh, the, the, deep need for people to want the best for their children. I absolutely get that. Um, but, uh, people who are not neurotypical can live perfectly fulfilling and decent and, um, great lives. And not everybody has to be a people person. Not everybody has to be a chatty Cathy. Um, you know, my nephew is incredibly smart. Um, he is able to, um, tr he travels all over the place. He figures it all out for himself. He, you know, makes all the arrangements himself. He lives alone. With, he has a cat. You know, he lives a perfectly normal life. He, he's not a great conversationalist. Sometimes he's a repeater. Um, you know, he fixates on the things that he's interested in. Um, it doesn't really have the ability to empathize, empathize very much with you sometimes, but even sometimes he really can do that. I've had moments where he's said something to me where I'm like, Oh, that's really nice and like really heartfelt. And so, um, anything around the word, uh, disorder and autism always makes me bristle. But, um, I thought it was important to talk about this because this is one of those, uh, things that I often hear about from, um, autism groups. And it's good to hear that some scientists have actually gone and really looked at it and said, no, this is, this is not true. So getting back to Australia, um, the researchers looked at the microbiomes of 247 children. The cohort consisted of 99 children with ASD, 51 neurotypical siblings. Um, I will note that, uh, in some of the writings, it said normal siblings and I refuse to say that, uh, myself. So neurotypical siblings and 97 unrelated children without an ASD diagnosis. They first found out that there was, quote, negligible evidence for direct associations between the stool microbiome and ASD diagnostic status. And in fact, they found only one species of gut bacteria that differed significantly in abundance between children diagnosed with ASD and the rest of the children. But what they did find, and I don't think that that was, they, they didn't seem to think that was a significant bacteria that would do anything impressive. Um, but they did find something that makes a lot of sense. The children's microbiomes were actually affected by their diet. Now, there are a range of possible causes, including sensitivities, allergies associated with ASD, um, a stronger sense of likes and dislikes than other children, um, and a host of other possible causes. Um, so again, I know my nephew went through a phase where he basically only ate chicken nuggets. Um, luckily, he is, again, branched out since and eats a wide variety of foods, including some I don't even like. So um, this suggested to them that the microbiome of children with autism is altered because of their behavior and eating habits rather than the other way around. And so the authors ultimately suggest that instead of clinical trials that aim to target the microbiome of autistic children, 
uh, which they see are starting to pop up, that researchers should instead focus on dietary interventions. Now, of course, this isn't an easy task, and personally, for many children with autism, may not, again, even be that necessary unless their diet is extremely healthy. Um, you know, personally, and this is obviously just my view and opinion, um, I think that people worry too much about kids and that most people grow up to be normal, diverse eaters, even when they grew up eating much less uh, diverse foods. I know I did, for one. Um, I'd worry much more about teaching your kids to be kind and to try and leave the world better than they found it. Uh, rather than, again, worrying whether or not they're eating too many chicken nuggets. I mean, too many chicken nuggets is probably not great for you, but still. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, obviously, I am not a parent, so I do not um, give out this advice as, you know, some sort of truth. I just, you know, it's my observation that most kids do okay. Um, <laughs> like, it's just... Most kids end up doing okay. All right, we are going to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And then when we come back, we are going to talk about a favorite topic, which is lawsuits involving Martin Screlly. So do come back for that um, or stay tuned for that. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio on WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure. Humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog, and a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. You work hard for your wages, so you need to know most workers should receive at least the federal minimum wage and hopefully more. Also, most workers should receive overtime if they work more than 40 hours in seven days. These are the laws for everyone, documented or not. Have questions about your wages? Call the U.S. Department of Labor Wage in Our Division. It's free and confidential. Call 1-866-487-9243. That's 1-866-4-US-WAGE. We can help. A message from the U.S. Department of Labor. Hey, this is Maddie, host of Planet Emo, a show that aims to bring you the latest and greatest in emo music from Massachusetts and beyond. If you ask 10 different people what emo music is, you'll get 10 very different answers. And my goal is to bring in every one of those perspectives. From 80s hardcore to the power pop of today, we'll hear it all. For your dose of early morning feelings, catch Planet Emo from 6 to 7 a.m. every Thursday right here on Valley Free Radio. Words and music every Sunday at noon. Featuring pop poets and literary lyricists like Joni Mitchell and Lucinda Williams. Towns Van Zandt, Costello, Cohen, Cobain, Guy Clark, Bruce Coburn, David Byrne, Paul Simon and Paul Kelly, Wussy and Weaker Thans, Bob Dylan and Bob Marley with your host, Dave Madaloni, Valley Free Radio. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen, high blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Hi. Okay, we are back. Sorry, that was a little bit long, but I saw uh, Betty White and I was like, oh man, I haven't played Betty White in a while. Betty White is a national treasure. 
Anyways, we are going to talk about Martin Screlly, which I know we shouldn't, and I'm going to reiterate that later. We really should not talk about him because he enjoys it, but I can't help it. So, the FTC has settled with Viera Pharmaceuticals, formerly Turing Pharmaceuticals, and its parent company, Phoenixis, over the price gouging scheme devised by Screlly and his partner to raise the price of the antiparasitic drug Daraprim by more than 4,000%, from $17.50 a tablet to $750 a tablet. The terms of the settlement involve paying up to $40 million in restitution to victims of the price hike and a requirement that the company make Daraprim available to any generic competitor for the cost of making the drug. The companies are also enjoined from engaging in any kind of scheme resembling that of the Daraprim price hike, which took place 10 years ago. You know, um, there is a uh, lawyer that I like to read his um, website and his Twitter, and he always says that the wheels of justice grind slowly, but they do grind. Um, and so this is definitely one of those times where it's like, yeah, this took a while, but it, it does happen eventually. And so in addition, former Vieira CEO, Kevin Malady is banned from quote, working for consulting for or controlling any pharmaceutical company for seven years with a $250,000 penalty for any violation of these terms. Now, of course, these are small potato amounts. Let's be honest. Uh, they actually only have to pay 10 million up front and then 30 million over a certain amount of term. And only basically if they're making enough money to continue to fund that fund. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of times these are victories that are meant to be more about ending the practices than about actually getting restitution for people. At least they did manage to get some restitution um, in this case. Um, I haven't been following because it's too depressing. Uh, the case about um, the opioids and whether or not that uh, settlement has been set aside or not. Um, I'll have to check in on that. Uh, but getting back to this, uh, Daraprim if you will remember, is a cheap to make but life-saving drug that incures, that cures infections with toxoplasmosis, which usually attacks the immunocompromised, such as AIDS patients. Viera not only hiked the price of the original drug, they also allegedly included resale restrictions in their agreements with drug distributors, which meant that generic competitors couldn't produce the drug without going through the FDA testing process, which takes time and money. They allegedly made exclusivity agreements with suppliers that made vital components of the drug unavailable to competitors. And finally, allegedly, blocked two key distributors from releasing sales data that would have suggested the potential need for generic competition. Now, the settlement involves all of the players with the exception of Screlly, who is due in court on December 14th. So that would be on Monday? Tuesday. So he's due in court on Tuesday. FTC Chair Lena Khan said in a statement, Martin Screlly masterminded an elaborate plan to dramatically jack up the price of life-saving drug Daraprim by blocking cheaper options. While litigation against Screlly continues, the order shuts down the illegal enterprise run by his companies Viera and Phoenixis uh, and bans his associate from the industry. This strong relief sets a new standard and puts corporate leaders on notice that they will feel that they will face severe consequences for ripping up the public by wanting, wantingly monopolizing markets. <sighs> and yeah, this is um, really nice to be able to have an actual victory of any sort against this ridiculous, awful scheme. And I think that, um, you know, Screlly is already serving time for uh, securities frauds. And so, um, you know, I wanted to make a joke about his incarceration, but 
I have to be true to the fact that I don't believe that incarceration is actually a fair punishment for Screlly or really anyone. Honestly, I think that if you really wanted to punish Screlly, you'd seize all of his assets and require him to work for a nonprofit. <laughs> um, but I think also, as much as I am not contributing to this, I think one of the best punishments might be to erase him from the history books and to stop talking about him completely. He just seems to thrive on the attention and I hate contributing to it. Um, but, you know, here we are. Huh. So yeah, um, I am hoping that there will be more punishment laid upon him. Um, I just don't know if he actually feels any of the punishment. So it's more of a catharsis for the society rather than, um, any kind of real, um, you know, ability to actually make him, um, see the error of his ways. He seems very, very, uh, unrepentant. And I'm not sure how you could actually get him to be repentant. I'm not sure it's possible, frankly. Um, you know, he's already had a ton of his possessions stripped from him. Um, he had had a, um, Enigma device that the New York, um, that New York, uh, seized from him and sold off as uh, partial payment for back taxes. Um, he had a bunch of other things, including a letter from Ada Lovelace. Um, I think something from Isaac New Newton, maybe a copy of the Principia. Um, you know, there is obviously the infamous uh, Wu-Tang Clan uh, album that he purchased and then said he wasn't going to listen to, um, because again, he thrives on attention. Um, all of that was obviously taken away from him and sold off to pay his back debts. Um, but it didn't seem to make any dent on him. So I'm not really sure that he has the ability to have dents made into his, um, persona. Um, and some people just, you know, some people just aren't ever going to learn a lesson. And, um, I'm not sure, again, that incarcerating him really is doing anyone any good, um, but it's what we have at the moment, um, and I don't see anything else. I certainly don't want to let him go um, and go back to his life. Um, that just seems very, very much like something that we shouldn't do, um, at least for a while. Yeah. Sorry, I'm a bit off the, <laughs> I'm a bit, you know, rambling on that one. Um, it's getting to the end of the year and I think that I'm, I'm losing steam. <laughs> uh, so, okay, let us move on from unrepentant capitalists to communist rovers. <laughs> so, um, if you hear anyone in the next few months, uh, talking about a quote unquote mysterious hut on the far side of the moon, have no fear. It is certainly, um, it is almost certainly not aliens. And so China's U2 or Jade Rabbit 2 rover spotted a protrusion that looks vaguely boxy on the horizon in a picture taken on October 29th, which was the mission's 36th, 36th lunar day. The object is around 260 feet away, according to the China National Space Administration. Now, given that there is an impact crater near it, the quote-unquote hut is almost certainly a rock that was ejected or lifted up by the impact. Now, the rover is headed that way just to, you know, confirm, um, but like most rovers, it's a bit slow. It will take between two to three months to reach the site. Now, that may sound like a really long time to go just a couple hundred feet, uh, but not only is the terrain rocky, but the rover needs to take breaks. So it needs to take breaks when the sun is directly overhead to avoid overheating and when the sun is absent in order to preserve power because it's solar powered. So if it uses up the last of its power before the sun comes back up, that's not good. And so the rover has been traversing the 115 mile wide Von Karman uh, crater for 40 lunar days. Um, and so each lunar day is around two weeks on Earth, which is then followed by two weeks of darkness. So again, uh, two to three months, it's because there's two to three, uh, week, 
there's two weeks on, two weeks off, basically every time. And so along the way, it has taken a detailed scan of the view under the moon's surface using ground penetrating radar. And this showed that the crater has three distinct layers, a top layer that extends around 39 feet down, consisting of lunar regolith with the occasional large rock or two. A second layer from around 39 to 79 feet deep features coarser grained materials and more rocks. And finally, a third layer, which goes down at least 130 feet, which is about as far as the range on the radar, and consists of alternating stratas of coarse and fine-grained materials, along with, once again, interspersed rocks. And so the data indicates that the subsurface internal structure at the landing site is essentially made by low-loss, highly porous granular materials embedding boulders of different sizes, the researchers led by Chun-Lai Li, of the National Astro Astronomical Observatories at the Chinese Academy of Sciences and the University of Chinese Academy of Sciences in Beijing, wrote in the new paper. This suggests something about the region's history of impacts and lava flows. Given such a strong geological constraint, the most plausible interpretation is that the sequence is made of a layer of regolith overlaying a sequence of ejecta deposits from various craters, which progressively accumulated after the emplacement of the Mare Basalts on the floor of von Karman Crater. And so the rover also discovered a gel-like substance at one point, which researchers think is lunar rock that was transformed by an asteroid impact into glass. So that's very cool. Um, and so, yeah, obviously obligatory things about China and about how America, China, it's, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go with it's complicated. Um, and so, yeah, um, I don't really know what the saber rattling over the Olympics is going to lead to. I would like it to not lead to anything because we already have a pandemic. We don't also need to be skirmishing with China especially since we're probably going to be skirmishing with Russia over the Ukraine. <laughs> I would like to no longer live in interesting times. I would like to live in boring times, please. <laughs> okay, let us move on from the moon and astronomy to its uh, cousin, physics. So a team of physicists have announced the first detection of neutrinos at CERN's Large Hadron Collider. Now, that might sound a little bit weird because, you know, we all know about neutrinos, but neutrinos are extremely hard to find. Um, we have previously used huge detectors in extremely isolated conditions, like, for instance, buried under a mile of ice or submerged under Lake Baikal, which is the deepest lake in the world. Now, weirdly, because particle physics is full of counterintuitive realities, trillions of neutrinos are passing through your body as you listen to me tell you that. <laughs> but they're one of the least interactive particles we've yet managed to detect. And so the new paper published in Physical Review D describes how physicists were able to use the beam line at CERN to detect neutrinos. Prior to this project, no sign of neutrinos has ever been seen at a particle collider, said study co-author Jonathan Feng, a physicist at the University of California, Irvine, and a co-leader of the collaboration that managed the experiment in a press release. This significant breakthrough is a step toward developing a deeper understanding of these elusive particles and the role they play in the universe. And so the scientists used a detector called PHASER, or Forward Search Experiment. And this is meant to look for new, light, and weakly interacting particles, as well as to study the interactions of high-energy neutrinos. The pilot detector is made from 101 plates of lead and 120 plates of tungsten sandwiched together, each with an emulsion film between them. The neutrinos produced by the LHC smash into the heavy metal nuclei in the phaser array, leaving marks on the emulsion layers that can then be 
seen. Now, Phaser is the trial run for Phaser New, um, which is an experiment that will be more reactive and will be able to detect even more particles. This will be designed to look for weakly coupled elementary particles and theoretical particles such as dark photons, uh, which are amongst the, frankly, it seems many some days, dark matter candidates. Uh, Given the power of our new detector and its prime location at CERN, we expect to be able to record more than 10,000 neutrino interactions in the next run of the LHC beginning in 2020, said David Casper, also a physicist at UC Irvine, a a co-lead of Phaser and a co-author of the new paper in the press release. We will detect the highest energy neutrinos that have ever been produced from a human-made source. So hopefully everything will go well, and we'll be able to understand more about the fundamental particles of the universe. You know, which is which is a pretty good day's work. Um, you know, we're still we still have a lot of we, we still have a lot of of uh, things that we don't know. Um, you know, the whole dark matter thing is still real difficult um because it's got to be there but we just we just still haven't figured out how to find it and um you know i mean particle physics is still an extremely extremely young science i mean einstein is only um you know about a hundred years ago and so that is not that long ago um and obviously we knew about particles before Einstein, um, obviously the Curies and other people did some really amazing work. Um, and actually this year, uh, earlier this year, they celebrated, um, a connection between, uh, France and America when it came to Marie Curie. Um, it turns out that, uh, Marie Curie at one point in, uh, France was having a really hard time getting at radium because it was real expensive. And so, um, some women in America found out about that and they ended up um, gathering a ton of money together and they were able to uh, convince the president to uh, buy a um, gram of radium for Marie Curie. So she came over um, and she did some speaking tours, even though she was not really uh, all that excited about speaking, but apparently it actually worked out pretty well for her. She got her radium. She actually got a bit of a confidence boost that all these people were really interested in her work. And um, yeah, I hadn't really heard about that before and it was really cool to read about it. Um, So yeah. All right. That is all the time we have for tonight. Um, Next week might be uh, back from um, my bedroom studio rather than this studio. Um, depending on how the news uh, shakes out. But I will be back uh, next week, barring unforeseen circumstances. So have a great night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.